Hello and welcome to the latest Prescast. I'm talking today to Gino Martini, who's our chief scientist. And the sound quality may not be quite as good today because I'm doing this in the lunch break in the community pharmacy. So the soundscape is going to be a little bit different and you might hear things like phones ringing in the background. But uh, we felt it was still important to keep in touch with you. What we're going to be talking about today is testing and a couple of other scientific issues that have come along because we're being asked a lot of questions about that. Um, so, Gino, why are we testing and how are we testing? So, um, the important thing to understand about the coronavirus is, of course, there is, there is no treatment other than supportive care. And so, it's vitally important for us to understand uh, who's been infected uh, by the virus and who has not been to try and get the best treatment plans available um, for, for what we're trying to do. Um, and so there are basically two kinds of tests uh, which are out there uh, right now. Uh, and, and basically, um, uh, test number one, I, I'd say, is what we call a diagnostic test. This is the swab test. Uh, and this is where we take a swab from your nose or your throat. And the idea here is we're, we're, we're trying to detect um, um, any genetic material from the virus inside your inside your body and when you and when this happens it then tells us that you've actually got the virus okay this takes about a couple of days for the results to, uh, to come back the other test we call uh, it was called antibodies test uh, which is like a, uh, a blood test is where we take a sample of your blood uh, the test takes a couple of seconds to do and what that does, that then tells us whether you've been exposed to the virus because we're looking for your antibodies. This is your own natural uh, immune system fighting off the virus. So if you've got antibodies, we know you've had uh, the virus in, in the past. So the two distinct tests, one is to understand whether you've got the virus here and now, and the other one is to whether you had the virus in, in, in the past. The only thing we need to watch out for with the antibodies test is and this is the RPS position as well, is that there are a lot of fake um, and defective uh, blood tests out there. And we do not propose or recommend anybody uh, contacting suppliers on the internet and buying those blood tests because they're inaccurate, they're fake, and you, you probably get conflicting uh, data. So that's where we are right now. We have a test to say you've got it now and a test that says you've had the virus in the past. Okay. Obviously, it would be really important for staff to know if they've had a mild dose of the virus um, because it will help them carry on working with some reassurance and be less worried about contracting the virus. We were actually promised um, antibody testing a few weeks ago, and we were led to believe that it was um, almost imminent. Do you know why it's taking so long? Yeah, there are a number of reasons, but can I just go back to that point you made about having the virus and, and uh, having immunity. I mean, we believe that once you've had the virus, you're probably not getting reinfected. We believe, but there may well be um, uh, an opportunity to, to be reinfected. There could be, so we're not sure. We think that you're, you're going to be fine, but you know, I want to be really clear that it's still not conclusively um, 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 being resolved, if that makes sense. But clearly you've had it in the past, you've had antibodies towards it, you're in a better position. But I think we just need to be, ca be cautious about the fact that you've got complete immunity over the next three or four years, if that makes sense, okay? Okay, uh, so why the delay in the testing? 
Why do they say? Well, there are a number of reasons for that. I, I think ultimate, ultimately, ultimately, um, um, first of all, there are the reagents. There's been issues in getting supply of reagents because these things are diagnostic in, in, in nature. Uh, and also the capability and infrastructure in the UK is not as good as it could be in other countries like Germany, for example. Um, and so uh, what's happened now, Matt Hancock has announced his five pillar strategy. And the aim now is to try and get 100,000 tests per day by the end of April, whether they're on track or not, um, that still needs to be to be debated. But a lot so of it's- be clear, that's the, that's the test to see if you have COVID, not the antibody test. Uh, well, I, well, they're looking at so their five pillar test. Um, 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 I'll tell you what the ambitions are. That's the scale up swab testing in public health England labs. Okay, uh, we're focused on critical workers to deliver increased commercial swab testing for critical key workers to develop blood testing uh, to help know people across the UK have had the uh, the virus in the past, and then to obviously to conduct UK surveillance to see what the how, how big the problem really has been. And, and to build a mass testing capacity across the UK. So they're looking at both, actually. Um, but the real reason is that there's been a real paucity in, in reagents and actual infrastructure, places to do the test. Most of the swab tests have been done in central laboratories. That's been the position uh, we've had at the very beginning, I doing in public health England labs to make sure the test to be done properly. And that's why there's been a problem for the blood test, because it's been uncontrolled. We don't know what you're getting. And the results have been conflicting. Okay. Yeah, and um, I'd just like to reassure anybody listening that uh, the RPS has been lobbying very hard to ensure that pharmacists are um, key workers who will be tested. Uh, that's both in hospital and also in the community, where very often the community pharmacists are um, keeping community services going and the only place of contact for patients so um, again we um, have been given reassurances but until it comes out in paper then you never know quite what you're going to see but we will be making the point again um, the next time we speak to um, the minister. Uh, Gina you mentioned other countries and we hear a lot about Germany doing a lot of testing and uh, some Asian countries. Why are we so far behind um, in the testing numbers and is there any reason why we weren't prepared? Well that's a difficult question but we're, we're prepared uh, I think that's down to I think um, a discussion we're supposed to have with Matt Hancock I would imagine really. Ultimately Germany uh, has a very big diagnostic capability um, and, and so they have uh, companies like, like Roche for example, uh, Quiagen and they've been able to generate a lot of diagnostic tests very quickly uh, to do this. However, saying that, because of the five pillar uh, strategy that Matt Hancock uh, announced a couple of weeks ago, uh, what we can say is that GSK and AstraZeneca have joined forces in Cambridge to set up a diagnostic lab there. And Roche Diagnostics have actually been very active in the UK to try and scale up uh, the number of tests available. So I think we, 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 are, we are catching up. I think there's been a realization that perhaps our diagnostic capability was not as advanced as it could have been um, uh, to, to, to other countries. And also, I think the strategy was slightly different as well. I think, you know, if you look at the, uh, South Korea and Germany, they were very pro-testing. And I think, you know, uh, the view of the UK was slightly different. It was more of a look and see, a, a precautionary approach. But I now think they realize that's probably something that we need to look at now and, and, and fast track. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's uh, great that 
pharmaceutical rivals are working together in the um, interests of the, the public. What else is happening in the pharma world? Yeah, no, I, I, that's true. I, I mean, I think, um, first of all, what I'm excited about, and we've been interviewing a lot of, uh, so we just interviewed the CEO of, uh, of, of Sandos, Richard Sena, uh, the biggest genetics company in the world. Uh, just on the, the MD UK for uh, Novartis, uh, Haseeb Ahmed, um, and and and, they, and he's also the president of the API. And the thing I'm quite excited about is I've never seen such an unprecedented degree of cooperation, collaboration uh, between the industry. Let's be really clear, okay? Without the industry, we're not going to get a solution for this disease, okay? We need this collaboration to to occur. The sharing ideas, the sharing of reagents, which is very important, uh, the sharing expertise, the sharing um, resources, infrastructure to get this done. Um, uh, Sanofi and GSK have formed a collaboration to fast track the vaccines, because right now we can't wait 18 months. We need to get this done before 12 months, and that requires huge cooperation between companies. Well, one, two arrivals now have to be uh, key collaborators. Uh, as you know, um, uh, Bill Gates um, has announced a massive uh, consortium. Uh, it's led by Vaz Nazarin, who's the chief executive officer of Novartis. And in that, you've got likes of BD, uh, Biomario, Boeing Lime, GSK, Eli Lilly, Johnson Johnson, Merck Sharp and Dome, you know, Merck, Pfizer, Sanofi, all working together to try and find ways to find a cure, improve diagnostics, um, and delivery and manufacture. Because what we've got to understand, if they, if we do a diagnostic and we find a vaccine, we have to make this at scale, okay? And that requires sharing of huge resources. So I've been very impressed. I'm an industrial pharmacist, and dare I say, very proud to see the collaboration between the industry, the way the, the way the way it's moving. Because without it, I think we would be in some serious issues going forwards. Yeah, certainly unprecedented in my experience, but we are living in uh, very, very different times at the moment. Um, moving on from uh, vaccines, uh, I don't know if there's anything else happening, but um, one thing I've noticed just the last couple of days, the guidance on ibuprofen has changed yet again. Yeah, yeah, it has changed. But let me just, before we go to ibuprofen, let just... Just, just cover some of the issues about about the treatment. I think the treatments seem to be uh, in, uh, seem to be in three buckets, shall we say? One is a vaccine, okay? And the problem about the vaccine is we need something that's going to be uh, gives you a stable or a consistent response. So the coronavirus is called that because of the spikes that protrude from the cells when you look at it, and so they're, they're called spike proteins. And uh, the hunt is to try and get those proteins in in in, in a stable form in a form that allows you to, to get an immune response. So that's that's what the hunt is on right now. The other bucket is to look at existing drugs, what we call repurposing them, and try and use them in a different way. So that's why there's been a lot of interest in chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir, which is antiviral, because there's a belief that these drugs may have, a, have, have an impact um, on the virus. The issue we've had is that the trials have been uncontrolled, okay? And so you don't know the patient's recovering because they're recovering or um, whether the actual medicines work in the way it is. So repurposing, reusing all the drugs in a different way. And Remsevir was actually designed for Ebola, and now it's uh, showing promise in, um, uh, in, in the clinic. And then, of course, there's the new molecules, you know, the, the new molecules very early on. They've never been tested in, in humans, which have been fast-tracked as well. 
So I think because also that's quite important, isn't it? Because what you want is a is a, is a is a a whole array of, of bullets or armories to tackle this virus because we don't want this to come back again. Uh, clearly not. So that that's 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 important. That's that's something that we should talk about. Okay. Thank you. And ibuprofen. Ah, of course, ibuprofen. Yeah, the, the question. Yeah, there has been um, a lot of um, speculation about ibuprofen and whether. And, and to be very clear, I think the the data was always inconclusive about whether ibuprofen can interfere with your immune system or can make COVID symptoms worse. Um, I think there was a, a on the precautionary principle, um, and the chief scientist said, "Well, you know, we've got to be careful." I think the MHRA reviewed all the evidence, and actually, you know, there comes to the conclusion you, you can use ibuprofen if you're suffering from COVID-19 or have symptoms of COVID-19. The guidance of the NHS England is, though, obviously, start off the lowest dose and it's for short-term use. So basically, the answer is yes, we can use ibuprofen. Yeah, and I think that's the issue we have with. COVID-19 at the moment is, is everything so quick, it's fast moving, you know, and we just got to keep our, an eye on the ball and, and, and a finger on the pulse to make sure that we've got the current evidence and share that of our members as best as we can. Thank you. So what's on your agenda for the next week, Gino? Uh, so we're doing more podcasts because I think what's important is that we keep, um, so we've developed a work stream. So in the RPS right now, uh, work with, you know, with Robbie and Gail, um, who's that of education, and all my colleagues, is that we've set up in work streams. So I, I, I co-lead the intelligence work stream. We're looking at the data that's coming in, new treatments, um, what, what's concerning our members, uh, what new research is out there, so that we understand what the problems are um, in, in the pharmacy world, in the medical world. And our job then is to inform the rest of our work streams on policy, Content delivery, um, education that we are that you know that we and also comms communications people that we're actually keeping abreast of what's going on. I've never known anything move so quickly, um, like and, and the news and, and so much fake news out there as well that we have to kind of decipher all and make a judgment call based upon that. And that's what we do. So my job hasn't changed. I'm, I start at eight virtually every day, finish at six, seven, and it's constantly looking at what's coming in, what's going on, putting reports together, forming a strategy, and at the same time, put podcasts out like this, which can inform members of what we're up to and what we're trying to do. And also to promote, not promote the industry in, in, in any other way, but show the fact that a lot of stuff is happening, that there's hope that we will find a cure for this dreadful disease. And that's something I, I'm really keen to, to showcase. Thank you, Gino. On behalf of the members, I'd just like to thank you um, and the rest of the team for um, going the extra mile and all the work you're doing at the moment to keep us informed. And just a reminder to those listening that there's a huge amount of resources on our COVID hub page and um, it creates quite a lot of hard work to keep that fresh, up to date and relevant. Um, if you can't find the answer there, contact the team because we really are here to help you at this time. So thank you, Gino. Sandra. Thank you for listening. Sandra, can I also thank you on behalf of the RPS and all pharmacists for working on the front line? You're doing this in the community and it's uh, very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you.